The Tom Woods Show, episode 1681. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by now you've probably noticed that news about the virus is almost always fact-free hysteria these days. So you need my brand new free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About the Lockdown. Go pick it up at wrongaboutlockdown.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here talking to Diana Johnstone today. Second time we've spoken to her. Last time she was here, we talked about her book, Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton. And today we're talking about her memoir because Diana Johnstone has been a political writer and a journalist for many decades. And in her present memoir, she looks back on, well, what her life was like, but primarily the topics that she covered over the years. And they include, they go back to Vietnam and from that point on, basically. And she's an interesting person because she's not a libertarian, but she's not a doctrinaire anything, except, I think, a, a searcher for the truth. And that's why I respect her so much. So the book we're talking about today is Circle in the Darkness, Memoir of a World Watcher. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1681. Diana, welcome back. Well, thank you for inviting me. There's so much great material. I could do a whole week with you on this with no problem without breaking a sweat. However, that would make people feel like they had already read the whole book and we're not going to give them that feeling. No, we're going to leave them wanting more with this uh, compact conversation that we're going to have. But before we get into that, I'd like you to situate us in the thought of Diana Johnstone, because I've had you on before. Some of my folks don't, won't be familiar with you. And I want to know, how would you describe the way you look, let's say, at the ruling classes of most of the Western world? I mean, I mean you know, they, they rotate between a supposedly liberal and supposedly conservative but what do you think, what do you feel like they all have in common that people on both sides tend to miss? Well, actually, uh, we're talking about the Western world. We're talking about NATO countries. What they all have in common is they're pretty obedient to Washington, frankly. Yeah. And they have been uh, for 75 years. And the, the, they all are following the same sort of liberal, now neoliberal ideology human rights uh, and interfering in the rest of the world, giving the, world, the rest of the world lessons from the West, uh, that they all have that pretty much in common. Of course, the economic policies are increasingly neoliberal, but politics is everywhere, as in the U.S., I think, more and more um, dominated by cultural or attitudinal issues rather than economic issues, which are sort of taken for granted and decided by technocrats. Right. That, now, that's, that's certainly true. Where does somebody like you, let's say, or like me, now you and I have different outlooks, but we are both, I don't know, perhaps equally contemptuous of the, the mainstream elites around the, the Western world. Well, somebody in politics who comes along who doesn't fit into that mold, who's not on the, who's not a neocon, who's not a neoliberal, let's say, what happens to them when they try to introduce their voice into the conversation? Well, uh, they can talk a lot to themselves, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, they, well, I, I think, you, you see, 
I've spent as long time uh, looking around in journalism, more or less. And I think that conformism has gotten worse in my long career. There's very little tolerance these days for, for really original views and real discussion. There's all kinds of false discussion around more or less false issues that don't matter very much. But there is an enormous lack of, of serious discussion and serious debate. And um, I think this can be alarming to people regardless of their point of view. I mean, at least you and I clearly, I'm sure, disagree on issues. I think particularly economic issues. Uh, but at least we talk to each other. And, yeah. <laughs> and and the, the, the dominant mood here is, oh, you mustn't talk to people who don't agree with you. And if you're on the left, if you talk to somebody on the right, that makes you a red-brown, neo-fascist you know, uh, uh, lurking in the, in the shadows. It's, it's really terrible, the, the tendency toward uh, forcing people to conform to whatever is the, I use the word in my book, the common narrative, which is imposed on people of all right-thinking people must agree to the common narrative. And I ran into this, especially in what I wrote about Yugoslavia, uh, was censored in Sweden simply because it did not conform to the common narrative, which is good for us all. It brings us all together if we all believe the same thing. Uh, this, this seems to be an attitude that is very widespread. And of course, the dominant politicians, uh, we have a generation of really extremely mediocre political leaders, and uh, they cling to the common narrative. But you mentioned Yugoslavia, and obviously those issues are not on the front burner any longer. But at the time, I think a lot of people thought the situation, like, for example, in the mid-1990s, I think a lot of people thought the situation was too complicated to figure out. So they just trusted what NATO thought was the best thing to do and what Bill Clinton thought was the best thing to do. So we had we had that. We had the, the controversy centered around Bosnia. And then in 1999, the bombing of Serbia. Now, both of these things were presented as mainstream U.S. policy objectives from which there was no reasonable dissent that we are trying to prevent a genocide in the former Yugoslavia, for heaven's sake. There's no reasonable dissent from that. We're trying to prevent uh, the Serbs in 1999 from attacking and engaging in genocide against Albanian Muslims. Who could be against these things? What was wrong with that way of looking at that? Well, it was untrue to start with. <laughs> I mean, you know, the main thing that's wrong with these, these common narratives is that they're based on false uh, facts. Um, there was absolutely no, no genocide. What there was was a suppression of, a, of an uprising in a province of, the, of Serbia. And it was an ethnic uprising, uh, a violent ethnic uprising that began by assassinating people, assassinating uh, uh, police and director of a university. And, and it was by ethnic Albanians, terrorists, a group that had been called terrorists by the State Department, but then they decided to ally with it. 
And this was simply a pretext to change governments in, in Serbia, but especially it was a pretext to give NATO a new mission. The whole purpose of that war was to revive NATO, which seemed to be threatened with uh, obsolescence because the Soviet Union had collapsed and NATO was supposed to be there to protect Europe from the Soviet Union. And with no more Soviet Union and no more Warsaw Pact, what was NATO for? And the United States absolutely needs NATO to keep its domination of Western Europe. It's military occupation of Western Europe. And so NATO needed a new mission, and the new mission would be humanitarian. We have to go save people by bombing the country and having it torn apart. And that was what, what that war was really all about. What do you think, in light of that, what you just said, of what we read in the news uh, within the past few weeks that Trump is proposing removing 9,500 troops from Germany. And the response was, how dare you do this? This is an outrage. And so I posted on Twitter, what a bunch of welfare queens we have over in Germany. They're, they're going to be outraged that the U.S. isn't going to keep <laughs> spending its money and deploying troops over there. So it, it may be that the U.S. thought of itself that way as, as being an occupier of Western, or maybe that was the effect of it. But when they try to pull back, it's the Europeans who object. Well, wait a minute. First of all, that's a very small pullback that he's suggesting. And meanwhile, the Poles are begging, oh, please send the NATO troops to us instead. Yeah. Uh, but it's not really, the, the, the problem is that you have, you're not giving a poll to the German people. They would be very happy to see those troops. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, this is this is this is the ruling class of Germany, and you have to realize that that the leading politicians and the leading media people in Germany are pretty much vetted, if not selected, by the United States. There are these young leader programs. There are all of these international partnerships where the United States pretty much decides who should be a leader in Germany and who shouldn't. So those leaders are frankly, I, I don't like to word this kind of sort of propagandistic word, but um, you, you know, let's take the example of Yashka Fischer that I write about quite a bit in my book. He was a, supposedly a green leader, opportunist is what he was. He had been active in a radical groups that were attacking American bases. So he had a very funny past. He had never had higher education. And yet he became foreign minister during the, the, the war against Serbia, the Kosovo War. And the United States diplomat said that he would be a great foreign minister. Now, how come someone who has a past of a street fighter is suddenly considered by the United States to be a wonderful potential foreign minister. Well, there's got to be some dealing there, right? It, it, um, this was not a Rhodes Scholar. This was, this was um, and that shows how you, with the right attitudes, you can have a, a spectacular uh, career. That, that's rather an extreme example. 
but it's an extreme example that, that illustrates that uh, the, the United States has huge influence, to put it mildly, on the leadership there. And of course, since those leaders are leaders that have more or less belonged to the United States, they don't want the United States to go away because it might mean that there'd be a different uh, leadership there. Let me shift gears a, a minute because uh, your chapter 13 uses the, the term deep state, which is quite controversial in the, the U.S. because there are people, at first the argument was there is no deep state. This is some right-wing fantasy or, or left-wing whatever. So it's, it's a distortion of reality. There's no deep state. And then the story became, of course there's a deep state, and thank goodness, because it's going to protect us from Donald Trump. They can't quite decide which one it is. What, what do you think this, this real story is? Well, it's, I think that uh, the presidency of Donald Trump has revealed to the world that there is a deep permanent state because it's been totally against Donald Trump. It has shown that uh, an elected president is supposed to be a, a spokesperson, a salesperson for that permanent deep state. And Trump wasn't the proper spokesperson, uh, ad man for, for the uh, permanent policies of the military industrial war complex. And so they've done nothing but try to sabotage him. And especially now this comes up with this book by, by Bolton to, to sabotage in particular any efforts he might have wanted to make to, to, to stop to end tensions and end the threats of war. And this is exactly what they don't want because the United States now lives on its military industrial complex and um, there are just so many vested interests. I don't know whether the term deep state is, is the best term for it. There are, sometimes there are phenomena that don't really have a good term for them, but they're there very much so. Well, I, when I look at the, let's say, the uh, commentators in the news, there is a range of commentary that we're entitled to, apparently, in the mainstream. So we have the, the left liberal establishment. So that would be the Hillary Clintons. And then the neoconservatives. I mean, I don't even know if Mitt Romney is an intellectual enough conservative to count in, in there, but it would be something like that. And they're all anti-Trump and they're all pro deep state. I don't know how else to describe it. Whereas it's, it's generally the people who are on the so-called fringes. And, and by the way, I don't think of myself as being a fringe person. I want peace and prosperity and people not to be spied on and, and to be dragged into kangaroo courts. I think the things I favor are pretty normal, but we're made to look like we're the crazies when I think they're actually the crazies. But those of us on the sidelines of this, we're not part of the Clinton to Romney complex are not really allowed to, to have our voices heard. And I get frustrated with people who, you know, they think they're really cheeky because they're against Hillary Clinton, but they buy into all the deep state propaganda just like her followers do. I presume you are just as frustrated with the establishment left? Oh, entirely. Uh, uh, absolutely. 
And I also consider that I'm quite normal uh, um, and, and just reasonable and just trying to understand reality as it is. I don't have any particular doctrine. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just trying to recognize reality as it is. And that turns out to be quite a task because they are all there making a fictional reality that suits their ambitions. And people who want to simply challenge that are, are mostly simply ignored. Well, you know, I, look, it's gotten to the point where you pretty much cannot trust anything that the U.S. regime says about something going on overseas. You can't trust what they're talking about with regard to their military intentions, with regard to how the military campaign is going, what the consequences are, what the reasons for their being there are, uh, what the results have been. You, you, there's no aspect of it that you can trust at all. But, but in a way, that's almost as good as being able to trust it because you know that the opposite of what they say is true. If there is one opposite, but sometimes there, there's more than one opposite. Oh, good point. <laughs> and people get confused. It's true, there's a huge, huge distrust. And uh, that tends to, to feed fantasies that are sometimes are way off because people don't know which is, they know that what the government is saying can't be true, but, but what is true? And they, they, they protect their falsehoods by not allowing reasonable explanations to be heard. Uh, so that a, a lot of people who don't have access, to the, don't have the time to study a question, uh, will, will just go off on, on wild ideas because uh, they, they haven't got the time or the scholarship or whatever to, 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 to know what the real explanation is. And people who do study these things and do have reasonable explanations are marginalized. And so the, 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 the fantasy world just goes right on. What advice would you give to young journalists in light of your own career? Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, With the internet, they are functioning in a somewhat different world. Exactly. I'm sure. Because the, the, in fact, everything is on the internet because I guess it has to be the internet. I just say watch out to, to protect your ability to use the internet. <laughs> because there are going to be um, assaults on the internet, too. I mean, uh, efforts, there already are efforts to shut it down and to shut down, um, because the internet is where you can get critical opinion. And so the, um, the drive is already on uh, with pretexts like, oh, that's hate speech, conspiratorial, et cetera, et cetera. They're already censoring internet. So I think uh, the first thing to do is, I don't know how, but um, I think internet should, you, you should have, it should be a public utility. It, it can't be censored because now it's, uh, the owners can, of, of, these, of these social medias can, can censor things. And but because the mainstream media is totally, totally dominated by the, the narrative that is imposed by the dominant interests, especially the, the military-industrial complex or party. So I, I can't recommend anybody to go into mainstream journalism unless they just want to make money 
and don't care a bit about what they say. Well, that's pretty demoralizing, uh, but I but I don't see how I can disagree with that. Now, as going through your your book, uh, Circle in the Darkness, th- there's so much compelling material in it, and a lot of this indeed comes from the fact that you observed a lot of this close up, and and you've you've uh, you've been, as you say, a world watcher for many years. Does your present outlook on the world? come from your experiences in journalism, or did you enter journalism with a view of the world already in place? Well, everybody starts out with some sort of view of the world. I think I've always been a tendency to to be somewhat skeptical um, about things generally. I I suppose a certain skepticism, a certain curiosity, um, and, and somehow or other, very much into concern about what is true and what isn't. <laughs> that, that's a familiarity. But I, I really consider that I'm, that I'm quite open-minded. But of course, we have influences. And I, I mentioned in my book, I was greatly influenced by my father. And he had been in Asia, working for the government and things. And uh, from him, I had gotten some realistic views about the world, and also views that that war, the wars are a bad thing, and that uh, the excuses for wars are usually not true. And this is sort of uh, my my framework. But the, it, it's it's an opposition to war and an opposition to all the deceptions that go along with war, all the lies and unnecessarily hate unnecessary hatreds uh, that are promoted by wars. Over the course of your career, what item, what news story that you covered most shocked you? And it could be you were shocked at, at the callousness of a regime or you were shocked at the gullibility of the public. What what issue would you say left you the most shaken? Well, it's uh, hard to answer that because I, I think... I first was shaken by the fact that even the left-wing journals would not take my first-hand account of what was happening in Kosovo. I was there. I had been there as a student. I knew much more about that place than the other reporters. And um, I was just being being there, and and I couldn't get published in in left-wing journals about that. Um, but I think the event that I find the most horrific is, is the destruction of Libya, which was a totally gratuitous crime based on absolute lies that destroyed a country that has created chaos in a whole continent. Um, and, and this, this is the most, I mean, there are a lot of crimes committed, but somehow this total destruction of, uh, of a third world country that was the most prosperous in, in, in Africa, and it's led to, to disaster, including the um, refugees from Africa coming into Europe. Um, and and that, was, that was a total, 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 total deception. And of course, you know who was behind it, especially right. Hillary. 
And we talked about that in the last time you were on the show was specifically Hillary and the, the disasters that have followed her around. And the thing is that in these situations, you find yourself seeming like a Trump supporter, because I, my question here would be, if Trump had done something that led to this kind of result in Libya, chances are we would never hear the end of it. Whereas right now in the Washington Post or the New York Times, Libya is the last thing in the world they want to talk about. I mean, it comes up from time to time. You do get an honest journalist, you know, 30% honest from time to time. But it's not front page news. Nobody cares. They've moved on. Uh, it's, but the second, but the other thing about Trump, and again, this makes it sound like I'm a cheerleader of his. I'm just, I'm frustrated beyond words by this guy. The, the people he chooses to surround him with despise him and what he stands for, and yet he still chooses them. He's got this deep state coup going on, and he refuses to give an address to the public outlining what's happening. He's the president of the United States. He could have one of the best speechwriters in the world lay out exactly what's been going on, all the creepiness, all all the, the people and what each one has been up to, and, and he doesn't even do it. He, he won't even, can't even lift a finger to defend himself except in feckless tweets. I, I don't know what to make of this person. The trouble is, you know, I, I, I wrote this at the end of my book on Hillary. I said, to really change things, you would need to have someone come to, to the presidency with a team, a real team. Uh, now, Trump didn't have a team. He doesn't even seem to know. I mean, I could make I could write out a good foreign policy team for me him. Me too. Yeah, me too. And, and he won't listen. But he, instead of that, what did he get? Bolton. I mean, he gets the worst imaginable people. Uh, and it's just like he hasn't got a clue about if, if he if he bent at all what he said about what he wants to do. He's hired exactly the wrong people, and um, so he simply this is the thing about being an outsider. He really was an outsider. He really is an outsider, and he's come in, and they are just uh, dominating him and sabotaging him at the same time. What has to, you need uh, someone who is outside of the system, but who who knows enough, who can hire uh, uh, Charles Freeman, or I mean, I could mention a lot of names of people that that he, he should have. Of course, the problem is that these people you name have to be uh, approved by the Senate, and of course, the Senate was there to to sabotage him all the time, too. So a president is not that all-powerful. Well, that is, a, that is a good point. Now, I guess I just feel compelled to ask, looking over, again, the, the diverse array of topics and places that you've covered uh, over the course of your career, you've seen an awful lot, you've written about an awful lot. Sitting here in 2020, is there any way you can leave us on a legitimate note of hope? That that is, uh, I, you know, my 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 hope is just goes back to my ignorance. Uh, I say, you know, the circle of knowledge is always out in darkness. There's more and more that you don't know. I I not always say I don't know about the future, and so I just always consider that the future can be better than I can imagine, because there are a lot of surprises. We've been just having a lot of surprises all bad, but, you know, maybe maybe something could, can come of it. Because at the exact moment that you're speaking, uh, things, I can only hope 
that there's so much irrationality that it can lead to a backlash of reason. <laughs> if people could go back to being reasonable, that's that's what I care. Yes, my outlook is reason. Reason is the only possible communication between human beings. We all have some capacity for reason. I'm an enlightenment person. <laughs> and there has just been, with postmodernism and everything, there has just been a flight away from, from reason to emotion to subjectivity. And this leads to total chaos. And if people can just uh, maybe somehow or other, there's a, a, a reaction back to reason. That's all I can hope for. Yeah, I agree. Is that the question is who is going to pop up to lead that? And uh, I don't feel optimistic about that. In the long run, I feel fairly optimistic, but in the short run, things seem pretty discouraging. But I very much enjoyed your book, which I'm going to link to at tomwoods.com/1681. This is episode 1681. The book is Circle in the Darkness: Memoir of a World Watcher. It will be linked there. Uh, you'll enjoy reading it. And and a lot of my folks, you know, again, look at the world. They come from a different starting point. But we sometimes we wind up in the same place uh, after we've viewed historical events through just the lens of reality and not the lens of a regime's propaganda. And, and there's a lot of a lot of what's in your book corroborates what I've what I've just said. So the book is Circle in the Darkness, Memoir of a World Watcher by our guest, Diana Johnstone. Thanks so much for your time today. And congratulations on the book and best of luck with it. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Okay, folks, that's going to do it for another week. I hope to see you in Las Vegas for Freedom Fest, which is still going on July 2020. It is still happening, and I'm going to be doing several things as part of the program, and it's going to be a great time. And Dave Smith is going to be hosting the whole event. Michael Malice will be there, and a whole bunch of other people you've heard on the Tom Wood Show. So if you're out there, you can get out there. Let's try to you know live a halfway normal life for a little while. Check that out, freedomfest.com. See you all next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.